Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 25, Preface. I will be using the Criterion channel for this podcast, but you can also find Breathless on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray, and you can find it on Vudu and Amazon Prime. If you hit the play button now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. If you are playing a streaming version, you'll be ahead for two or three seconds. There was before Breathless. And there was after Breathless. Jean-Luc Godard, Band of Outsiders, burst onto the film scene in 1960 with this jazzy, freeform, and sexy homage to American film genres that inspired him as a writer for Cahé du Cinéma. With his lack of polish, surplus of attitude, anything goes crime narrative, and effervescent young stars Jean-Paul Belmondo, Pierre Lefou, and Jean Seberg, Bonjour Tristice. Breathless helped launch the French New Wave and ensured that cinema would never be the same. And joining me for the first time on the Super 70 podcast is my son Luke. Now, before we get heavy into it, I want to explain while we watch Jean Paul Belmondo rub his thumb over his lip, which he does a number of times in this film, you'll see. Smoking his uh, his Galois cigarettes, which are almost twice as thick as normal cigarettes. And as he gets nervous with these uh, people he's eyeing here, what Luke is doing here is he is watching Breathless for the... Uh, for the first time. For the first time. So why would I ask him to watch this for the first time? First of all, I have... Infinite confidence, my son's ability to infinite confidence, my son's ability to analyze film just as as good as I can. He's <laughs> trained well after a lifetime of of, uh, of watching me do the same thing. Uh, he's got a unique perspective and, and constantly points things out and and has an auditory recall that is far superior than mine. And I I wanted him to watch Breathless with me instead of watching it beforehand this is only my second time watching it so i know what's going on but this is very much in the strain of godar godar was an experimentalist with film and the things that he was doing uh, in breathless and in his career were far and away uh, revolutionary for for film construction for filmmaking in general uh, like these jump cuts as a way to fast forward the narrative that you're seeing. And he was doing things so radically that people actually were confused sometimes when they watched Breathless. Uh, I don't think that anything will immediately jump out to you because we've seen 60 years of cinema since then. Uh, but at the time, it was really quite revolutionary filmmaking. However, I think that Godard would absolutely agree with a film analysis podcast with someone who's never seen it before. Because as this was his first film, he had never made a film before. He had made a couple of shorts. 
but the I think you would absolutely agree with with our immediate undertaking, right? What is what is uh, Belmondo doing here? When he's looking into the camera, what is he doing? Oh, he's breaking the fourth wall. Right. A little odd. I, I haven't seen that before. Right. Like this time. Yeah, a little odd. I mean, this is supposed to be a narrative, right? Mm-hmm. We're not watching Cuffs or Goodfellas. <laughs> yeah. Right? A little strange. I'll charge a kiss per mile. Right? So Jean-Paul Belmondo was one of the greatest, uh, I could say, say, sex stars of France in the 60s. He was seen as this ultra-masculine, uh, you know, almost like the Clint Eastwood of his day, you could say. he was Of France? Of, of France, yes, absolutely. Oh, look, he just happens to find a gun in the glove box because... Who has, France. That, who has that in France? Yeah, exactly. So you see the first jump of faith is he's actually... Now, he is a criminal. He's going to go... Did he just steal this car? He's, he did steal the car, yeah. He is on a crime spree, and he just happens to find... that It would have made more sense... If he bought it or stole or it. bought it or stole it or already had it with him when the film started. That would have made more sense, right? So you're going to see a lot of things in Breathless that do not make sense. At all. Like continuity? Continuity-wise, narrative-wise, storytelling-wise. And a lot of that is is geared towards the fact that I'm not making this up. Godard sometimes would not write the scene until the morning they were shooting. And that included the dialogue. (laughs) Okay. Even towards, it looked like there was somebody in the passenger seat there. Maybe that was just a coat that slid off the side. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not normally how you make movies, right? It, it, it is not. No, normally you have a finished normally. script in, in the Hollywood style. You have a finished script before you even start shooting, before you do anything. And Godard was against this. And or by the way, against this, this or was he just lazy? Well, let me... Let me tell you something. I would not be surprised if, if laziness was an enormous part of that attitude. So he just shot this cop, and, and now he's running for his life. Mm-hmm. Would have been smarter if, instead of running, he took the car he just stole. Well, right? But but to Godar, it's like, you know what would be cool? Is if he ran across that field, and he made that decision that morning. And that's also why it doesn't make sense. I didn't see the car in the back where he was running from. Right. There was okay. trees, right? So there was, yes, there was. But there was a, the car that he just stole was yeah. there. So. Yeah, it was. And then you so, shot, the, shot right. the guy and ran. Exactly. So here he's back in he's back in Paris. Now, ostensibly, so what you're going to see as a theme for the rest of the movie is that uh, uh, Belmondo is going to try, as a criminal who's known throughout Paris, a lot of people owe him money. So he's going to try to call in all of the, the debts that is owed to him so he can skip town. Okay. Okay. Uh, no one's going to want to give him the money because his name is in the papers. Yeah. Because he just shot this cop. So that's kind of the plot for the film is I have to get out of Paris. And he's going to basically make all of these contacts to try to do this. This, I think, is a fascinating idea for a plot that someone else should have directed. Um, It's an... It's an okay idea. Well, at the time, I'm sure it was revolutionary. But, I mean, I've seen plenty of movies where it's like, this guy's stuck here. He has to get money. 
to get out. Right. Right. I've seen plenty I, of that. I yeah, I can't uh, I can't say that I remember anything with that type of line before Breathless, but there's been plenty since. Not to say that's an original idea, but it's it sounds like a plot point that or a plot that I would be fascinated with. Belmont, uh, not Belmont, though Godard, by the way. If you, we'll get into how many of his movies I have watched in the last month because the Criterion Channel has about twenty of them on there, and I yeah. think I've watched about seven or eight of them. He's got a fascination with legs and butts. They they creep well, up. He's in French. Them. Well. Yeah, but well, I mean, there's a tolerance in France for much more than it is in America. But that's just something that I've noticed, particularly in uh, contempt with Brigitte Bardot. Okay, so I guarantee you, things like this monkey that that was that morning. Like somebody bought that on the way to the set, or they found it on the yeah, set. Yeah, I was looking somebody, at the whole it, when it showed up. I was looking at the whole time, like, why is it there? Yeah, they, they just decided to, or maybe that's just something that Belmondo just decided to pick up and run with now the reason i read you that intro to breathless and i want to i want to read you the first sentence again this is on the back of the box the criterion collection there was before breathless and there was after breathless so that seems to divide cinema history well yeah you can do it several times in cinema history like with specific movies like landmark ones you can divide it it's like before and after you know such as well like Reservoir Dogs. Ah, okay. And you can make an argument for, um, like, Infinity War. Oh, because of where... How it ends and, okay. like, where it leaves you and, you know, how big it is. And then uh, this one, presumably, I haven't, you know... Or before Return it. of the King and after Return of the King. That's a perfect example. Yeah, or what I was thinking immediately was before Citizen Kane. And after Citizen Kane. That's infinitely a better example. But if you if you lived in the 40s, you might have said before the jazz singer and after yeah, the jazz singer. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and this goes back to uh, that documentary that I think you and I watched uh, on HBO Max on Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And it was just called Spielberg. And it had an interview with uh, Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy and a couple of other people. And they were talking about the first time they saw a fully computer generated image of a dinosaur that was that was designed for Jurassic Park mm-hmm. and it looked so enormously realistic that they all were drop jawed and i think it was Kathleen Kennedy said i shit you not it was the equivalent of sound of sound and film okay. yes right and uh we shouldn't drop that by any means and breathless supposedly is one of these marks and i spent most of the movie trying to figure out why oh you're not in that boat i am not in that okay. boat right <laughs> okay not to say that there's there's not some cool stuff going on in breathless but i am not in that boat now that oh, i like this here in the, in the yeah streets, no so this you know? this walk and talk is what we call them in the film right yeah. we just saw one in mank remember oh, the walk yeah, and around, talk uh, Hearst castle uh, there's one around Hearst Castle, but there's one in Warner Brothers Studio. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? It's supposed yeah. to be, or it might be Paramount. Or it's supposed to be the MGM lot is what it's supposed to be. But the MGM lot was destroyed by Amazon mm-hmm. a year before uh, they could shoot Mank. So I think they filmed it at either Paramount or Warner Brothers. But it's a walk and talk with Lou B. Mayer. I thought it was Warner Brothers, like they shot it at. 
Well, when you and I went to Warner Brothers and Paramount, they they apparently had shot at both. So um, I don't I don't know where that specific walk and talk was shot, but it you know it looked to be okay, it looked like one Warner of Brothers. one of the one of the studios. Okay. Yes. Uh, so that is why it's a walk and talk. So oh, they're turning back now. This is uh, on one end of the Champs Elysees, which is the main boulevard through the heart of Paris, okay. which you know Germans have been marching through. <laughs> You know, about every 30 years for a century. So uh, in order to get this shot, we're going to get to Jean Seberg, this wonderful lady on the left here, had this ultimately fascinating life that will will bring you to tears. And she's a fantastic actress. But uh, what they did, they did not get a permit to get this shot. I, I assume right. not. Godard did not get a permit to do anything. In any of his films. Well, when he told me he wrote stuff on the fly, I assumed he didn't get, exactly get the permits to do that. Right. Well, you have to submit your yeah. your script to the film office in order to get a permit, right? And he didn't have a okay. script. So uh, other than this scene is going to take place here. So uh, he's obviously after her because she's a girl and she has money because she, she has a job, unlike him, right? Um, now, so Raoul Cotillard was the f- photographer. And uh, he was used to handheld stuff. There was no way Godard and Cotard could go down to Champs-Élysées, which is probably the, the busiest street in all of Europe, and put a camera on two actors and run down the street and record. It, there's cops everywhere. There's just, there's just no way they could have done this. So what Cotard did was he took the camera, and not making this up, he put it in an ice cream cart. <laughs> Okay. And then he got into the ice cream cart so he could operate the camera. And it had a roll door, had a roll door on the top. And they closed the roll door so that you wouldn't hear the sound of the camera running. Okay. And it had a, had a hole out the back. And so nobody on the street knew. It was just this guy pushing a cart back and forth on a street for hours. That's right. Well, not for hours because they did not have that much film. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. Oh. See? Yeah. See, this guy just got hit. Now, they didn't have any stuntmen, right? So they, you don't actually see the impact, right? Which is smart editing. And then Godard just, I mean, Belmondo just calmly runs away. Well, what happened to that? If they had no permits, did, like, cops show up to that guy? No. Not like, on the, okay. No. Right. And they would roll it into whatever coffee shop or, or quarter store that they were operating out of, and they would pull Cotard out of, of the ice cream thing. And, and if they decided, okay, the, that was a good take, then they would, they would just not go back. And if they needed another one, then they went back. But remember, they were trying to do everything on the cheap. The French government actually footed the bill for this, which is another story. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, see if we can, <laughs> don't have time to get into that, too. But it's there's a lot of things about this that are – are gonna gonna blow your mind. Uh, I gotta say, I'm I'm not liking the tie at all. Oh, the check. Yeah, I, I hate it. How short it is. It's coming out of the out of the blazer. It's I don't know what to make of it. It's better than sunglasses houses, inside. Cotard was and the bow tie. Uh, yeah. Well, 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 you know, it's uh, remember there was no budget for costumes, so this is probably their their clothes. Right. Okay. It's gonna blame the wardrobe guy, but remember, I can't do that. 
But yeah. Now you've seen Touch of Evil, which was the year before this. And when was this made? This was nineteen sixty. Okay. And Touch okay. of Evil, I think, was nineteen fifty nine. It might have been fifty eight. So you're familiar with uh, dolly shots like this. Only in, in this case, there is no dolly. Like Orson Welles, at least, had money for a dolly. Well, but, yeah, no, this, he's holding this. Yeah, this is handheld. So Cochard actually had served in Indoch- French Indochina when it was a colony. Okay. In the French Army mm-hmm. as a signals operator. So he was a cameraman in the French Army. That's, that's where he picked up his skill. When he came back to Paris, he In the early around. 50s? Yeah. Okay. Early to mid fifties, because when was Din Bin Fu? I think it was fifty eight. So he would have been out a couple of years, looking for work as a cinematographer in the French film industry. And here's Godard saying, "Yeah, I'll hire you." And, and they did several films together. They got along oh. quite well. New York uh, TWA, see that? Yeah, Trans World Airlines, owned by Howard Hughes. Yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> I'm not gonna say. So, and there is a, that little brochure on on the side it says Cunard Line. Which is, uh, that's one of the competitors to the White Star Line, which ran the Titanic, the Cunard Line. It was a popular ship line. So here, this... Uh, oh, these guys are looking for him? There's, those are the guys. Yeah. If you just Yeah, those are two cops that are looking for him. And if you notice, they just came in the door, then there's a quick cut, and they're all... They're, they're already there, yeah. Right. And that's going to happen throughout the film. That confused a lot of people, because if... Remember, what did we watch, like, last week, North by Northwest? Yeah. Okay, so you remember when Cary Grant gets out of the out of the cab in the beginning and goes in to meet his these two friends he's going to have dinner with at a, at a hotel? At Mount Rushmore? No, in the or beginning. The beginning. Of the, yeah, beginning I remember, of the I remember film, that. Yeah, yeah, in the very beginning. He gets out of the cab, he walks through the door. Then the camera, Hitchcock picks him up Yeah, and it the takes door. forever for him to walk down the hallway. Yes. It's like 10, 15 seconds of him yes. walking down the hallway. Yeah. And he takes a ride at like, the elevator. He you, goes you down another like, damn hallway. Is it, why is it there? Then he goes into the restaurant, and he's got to cross the damn restaurant and sit down with his... Godard doesn't do any of that. Godard's just going to jump to his next action. And this was a decision that was made in that he made in the editing room. And one of the reasons why is this was like a two-and-a-half-hour film. He goes, we got to cut it down. He cut an hour out of it? Cut an hour out of it. Just walking, huh? Yeah, well, not just walking, but talking, too. You're going to see... Conversations uh, cut off? Right. Right. And jump cutting in the middle of conversations. Or feelings and attitudes in between the actors that are going to be cut short using this jump cut technique. But how is this so special? If, like, key elements are missing from the movie. Right. Now... This is also the world of Jean-Paul Sartre. I have no idea who that is. Here we enter another... Uh, let me guess. Has he any other side? An amazing shot of the Arc de Triomphe there. Over that Citroen. How'd they do that in the middle of the street? It, it really begs it. the question how. There's a lot of stuff in this film that just really makes you think, now you'll love this. Oh, is... Yes. What movie is that? Which Bogart movie? I, you, you're the one who took French. Uh, I so I don't remember anything from French. Humane, that's weak, isn't it? Okay, if it's the... This is after this is after he died. So yeah. This would be a, a fairly recent one. Yeah, but you you see what Belmondo is doing. I mean, he thinks he's Bogart. Exactly. In the movie, right? Exactly. Does he think yes. he's a. Uh, what was that 
uh, High Sierra. Yeah. yeah. You see, he does that thing with his lip again. All right, that's going to come into play later. If you can figure that out. So here's an iris close, right? If you can figure out what that thing means, dragging the thumb across the lip, you let me know. What do you mean, like? I mean, I really you... seriously don't know. And if you can figure it out, I want to know. Oh, I think it's just like a character actor thing. Like, if he's... I think he thinks that's what the character would do. Like, if he thinks he's cool, like Bogart, he would do something distinctive. Like an actor. Like, a, like an act... Me okay, remember in, like, Yojimbo in, uh, in Sanjiro... Remember how uh, Toshiro was always moving his shoulders up and down? Oh. He thought his character had, like, fleas or bugs, so he would move his shoulders up and down. It's never explained. But that's just what he does. But that's what he, just what he does. I think that's just what he does. Interesting. Watch the bathroom scene here. Goodar, by the way, is not... Is not above putting, um, hump, <laughs> yeah, judo chop. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. Well, he, I was saying he's not above using um, homosexual a a, innuendo. There's a closet in the bathroom. Well, yeah, if you could find one. Now, we'll take this moment to uh, to introduce Gene Seberg to you. This girl is from Indiana, and when she was 17, she, like a lot of girls in America, got on a bus. And went to Los Angeles. And she wanted to be a movie star. And a director named Otto Preminger picked her out of thousands of girls and put her in this movie. Which was, it was uh, Joan of Arc. Oh, okay. So she played Joan of yeah. Arc. So she cut her hair for Joan of Arc. And it proved so fashionable in 1958. Topper's trying to get comfy. It proved so fashionable that she kept it. And that haircut, to this day, is called a Seaberg because of her. Okay. So Dolores O'Riordan. Oh, yeah. Or a Seaberg. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So now, as it happened, uh, that movie, Joan of Arc, bombed enormously. But Preminger was not one of these people that you could intimidate. And Did it, she just look at the camera? Oh, possibly. Okay. Yeah. And and if they had a bad take like that, they would just use it. Because right. why shoot it again? Because they're using the ice cream card again. This dude's doing a triple take back at the camera in the background. He's looking, he looked at it three oh, times. Oh, it, it could be that they're, see, that lady too, is yeah. doing it too. See, they're all the, kind of turning. Yeah. So the that camera might be, the camera oh, yeah. might be exposed. Yeah. Right. And, and here's another thing is, you know, you, you can't get into a back of an automobile with a camera because you, because of the lens of the camera, it is too close to you. So if you watch anyone who does a professional film, where is the camera? It's like on the trunk. Yeah. Right. Even even with a no one's going to use a wide angle lens, but even with a normal lens, 35 millimeter lens or even a 16 millimeter lens. The camera's way back there, but they didn't have that at the time. They couldn't afford a follow truck. They couldn't afford a, a, a grips to build a, a frame for the back of the car. So they literally got in the backseat of the car with the camera and then shot it. So what do we have? The back of Seberg's head for the next five minutes. Oh, well, it's definitely um, inventive. 
but would you see this is the- this is again this is the north by northwest problem like we're getting this continuous shot at the back of her head mm-hmm. for no reason well but it's not continuous there's jumps in it oh i'm see, sorry just like okay. that so but what he's doing is every time the car is slowing down he, he's skipping he's it, cutting so it's the next action right exactly so I first saw this about 20 years ago on the IFC channel, the independent film channel. And I saw it up to uh, probably about 20 minutes after this. And I was just like, I'm, I'm out. I, oh, you thought it was really that boring? Uh, yeah. And we'll get to the scene where I jumped off the boat. Oh, okay. And we'll see if we can get you through it too. Oh, oh no. Is it really that bad? This just depends on your point of view. Now, Oh, I like this. Yeah. I mean, this is rather inventive, trying to f- remember an, another time in which somebody did something like this up an escalator. And they just walked in and did this. Now, Seberg, by the way, uh, in, in the Joan of Arc is, you know, spoilers at the end of Joan of Arc. Guess what oh, happens. does she does she die? Yeah. Oh, whoa. Yeah, yeah they, okay. they strap her to a, yeah. you know. A, um, a cross? Well, no, not a cross, but a, a pyre. Stake. A, yeah, a stake. Okay. And then they set her on fire. Well, so Preminger used real fire, and he accidentally burned her. So they Sieber- burned her at a stake? Yes, they really burnt her at the stake inside a studio, and they were unable to put the fire out in time. So Seberg actually had burn scars on her body for the rest of her life. Well, that's... I mean, if you're going to get them, that's a cool way to get them. But that's horrible. It's rather traumatizing for a 17-year-old girl. Right. So, but Preminger, of course, was these, one of these people who's, who said, you know, I'm not going to accept that people think my movie is a bomb. And he did her, his next movie with her made her the star. And that movie bombed too. So. Well, then why, why was like, she's so popular then? Because of this movie. So, so, but people knew who she was because Otto Preminger was an enormously famous director. So. People went to go see Preminger's film just because they didn't like it. People knew who she was, but because it bombed, they just didn't particularly like her, even though they knew who she was. So she was pretty much unemployable after that. She had a contract with Preminger for another film, and he basically was dragging his feet because he didn't want to make it with her. So she asked to be released from the contract, and he did. He was like, oh, I finally got rid of her. And then she went around to the other studios looking for work. And, of course, they wouldn't hire her. So she went to Paris to look for work. And Godard hired her for this. I really like the background. Like, so, you know how much traffic that is? That is another... That was, a, that was amazing. You could never get that That's now. another thing that I found in a lot of Godard films. There's a lot of cafes. There's a lot of corner stores. There's a lot of coffee shops. There's lots of bistros. There's a lot of hotels. Lots That's of, Paris. Well, yes, but the, he, he likes shooting with, with glass in the background. Right, The camera's against the wall, and he's shooting out, so, he, so he's using the backdrop. Hmm. Another dolly shot. No, we were talking about how economic oh, the escalator. Yeah, so that's the same escalator she went up, right? Mm-hmm. 
So we were talking about how Godard was economical and then Godard being kind of cheap. Well, Godard stole money out of the magazine that he worked for, the Petty Cash. So he could go to Cannes, where Francois Truffaut's movie, The 400 Blows, was gaining favor and winning awards. And a producer there gave Godard the money to start Breathless, as long as Truffaut was involved in the script. And Truffaut wasn't involved in the script nearly as much as he should have been, in my opinion. Look at this. Look at this. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah, with the lamp lights on, right? Oh, they turned on a second ago. They were off and then they turned on. Right, because they're, they're set to come on at a certain time. Uh, there's so, a, um, there's another shot in, in the back that'll bring up another point, but I'm going to wait till that shot. Go ahead. So she, she went into another car with someone else. Mm-hmm. Is it, are we following her now or are we following, who are we following here? Yeah. Very good question. I mean, I mean, I don't think Godard knows until they got into the editing room, but I, you can, I, yeah, you can you, tell you, that we, he's We fascinated. just left them on the side of the road. That's right. And then you're, and you're going to know that you're not exactly sure where Belmondo is right now. I have no idea where he is. Right. Or what he's doing or what he's up to. I guess he's still trying to find money. Well, she walks in to the, get her key to her room, and her key is missing. So she's like, I don't Okay, so guess who's in her room? Okay. Belmondo. So how did he get there? We don't know because... How does he... Okay, well, I'm not even going to ask. Yeah, so. we, we don't yeah. know. We don't yeah, know we how don't. he knows where she lives. Or how did she get here? The, 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 all of this is skipped, right? Oh, she was... Never mind. I don't. Even, I don't even know. Right. Now, this scene is about twenty minutes, and this is where I got off the boat. I could not stand being trapped in this apartment with these two people for twenty minutes. This seriously goes this on is, for twenty. This minutes. is a ninety-minute movie, and for twenty minutes they're in this damn apartment. Now, you could say it's Gene Seberg. How horrible is it to be trapped in a room for 20 minutes, Gene Seberg? That's not what my my point is. There's very, very little going on with the story itself. And I thought this was a crime drama. Right? Isn't it? Well, it's supposed to be. Now, this is... Now, Belmondo had done some commercials and some stage acting. So, he was a trained actor... And this whole idea of getting a script like right beforehand, that wasn't too much of a big deal to him. But to Seberg, this was like crazy because she was trained in Hollywood where you got your script and you're set on the set. You discussed everything and you ran through the motions and you had a director on set and Seberg would say, okay, uh, Jean-Paul, what do I do now? And Godard's like, I don't know. What do you want to do? <laughs> that was you never the did that as a director, right? I heard it was like some director said it was like the one thing you never want to hear over here. You never want to say is I don't know. Yeah, you're supposed to know everything. Yeah. Is that another teddy bear? Imagine William Friedkin saying I don't know. Or on Steven uh, Spielberg, I don't on know. The Exorcist. Yeah, is he saying I don't know? My lord. 
you are entirely right. I'm already bored. In February of 1958, the film critic Pierre Billiard, writing in Cinema 58 magazine, applied the term to young filmmakers, and he meant it sarcastically, quote, the caution with which this new wave is following in the footsteps of its elders. Oh, 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 here's the reason. Here's a, sorry, sorry. Here's the reason. They are they already like were together before. They just yes. mentioned they were together before. That's that's how he knows where she is. Yeah. Okay. So that's how that's how he knows the, where the apartment is. Okay. There okay. You. Okay. Continue. Because they had a previous relationship. Yeah, exactly. The, I answered right. your question. Okay. So here is a here is something that Americans weren't used to at the time. Like this this was. Oh, this is European movies. They did this, they did this with M. Right. So right. I'm not surprised. Well, M they they would particularly have a, a problem showing uh, before 1934. Because the, the the Hayes Code wasn't enforced yet, but European movies as a whole, yeah. Oh, Breathless is playing down at the Biograph. Let's let's go catch Breathless because it's a French film. There might be. Does a he have there. a six pack? Not only does he have a six pack, you know, there's obviously something else going on. Like his did he his robe did he looks actively like work out shirt right? Oh, I'm sure he did. Look, he's he the dude is ripped. I've never seen that in an actor before. Sure. And like in this oh, time. Oh, before 1960? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you didn't see Kirk Douglas, like, you know, lifting weights, bodybuilding in Spartacus. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he didn't look like he killed people in an arena for a living, is all I'm saying. No, that's, that's fair. So, what is going on here? Well, if you can figure that out, just let me know. <laughs> is this whole yeah. movie just like me trying to figure out what that's, what's I actually think, going on? I particularly, I think this 20 minutes is Godard trying to figure out his fascination with Gene Seberg. <laughs> you know, why do I love her so much? He's deadly handsome, too. Oh, see, she just slapped oh. him hard. So that was another thing that you didn't have in films back then. You know, you didn't have women slap men. Men could rough women around all they want. But... It didn't happen the other way. I want to know where they're getting those jumbo cigarettes. The Galois? Yeah. I want to know. I want like, <laughs> why didn't Bogart have those? He'd look twice as big. Yeah. I'm just like, when did those stop? Uh, I think they had the Galois when I was there. They still have them? Yeah. Well, I don't know to this day, but I think when I was there, they still had them. Yeah. Do they still have like, like open... Like when cafes can like smoke anywhere still. Well, when I was there, it was still permissible to smoke in most places in Europe. Yeah, but I mean that was that is that was around the turn of the century. Yeah, All right. and in China, I mean, forget it. Like there, there was no place you could not smoke. They are. They are hotboxing this room. They're bogarting it. They're they're <laughs> they're bogarting this room. Look at all of the smoke. Are they? Are they just basically like? I don't even. They're just talking for twenty minutes. It's just like what you yeah, said. Yeah. So because of the war, you know, there was a there was a ban on on the fascist party of France, 
And then, of course, the Communist Party of France gains a foothold in post-war France. They actually become quite dangerous in terms of their ability to assert power in France in the 40s, late 40s. How does a communist wrap into them making the movie breathless? Follow me here. So because of the communist influence, um, not just in France, but in Italy and and other nations. Which is still here after the war. Yeah, but after the war, there was an enormous amount of communist influence in every country in Europe. Okay. Right? And in some countries like Poland, they took over. And there was, there was a fear that they would take over in Germany, which they did in half of Germany, right? In East Germany. And they had a huge influence in Greece, a huge influence in, in Italy. So because of that, George Marshall and Harry Truman cooked up the Marshall Plan. Yeah. Which is that I know, yeah. any European country can no, receive we'll funds, money. right? Yeah. We'll send you money as long as... You do not... Accept like, communism yeah. as, as your Government. defining philosophy. Government. Right. <clears throat> so that led officials in France to pretty much drop communism. But it also led to a backlash of American money in French culture. How do you mean backlash? Well. Did the French just not like getting money? For well, you know, obviously the French don't particularly assign a whole lot of importance to money like Americans do. I mean, that's that's a cultural difference. Well, yeah, yeah, but they just. Right. But like for instance, before uh, before 1950, I think it was 1949, they had a 90-10 ratio of Hollywood films to French films in French cinemas. That meant that 90 percent of the films that you saw in French cinemas were Hollywood. Yeah, films, I heard right? this before. Yeah. But after that... They changed it and had to be like 80-20 or something? It was 70-30. 70-30. Yeah. And so the big film that everybody wanted to see in the late 1940s in Europe was what? In the late 40s? Yeah. In the late 40s, the big film that everybody... Because of the war, they didn't get any Hollywood Citizen films, right? Kane? Of course, okay. right? So Citizen Kane comes to Paris for the grand opening in 1947. It was a bigger grand opening... A bigger uh, then, premier than, in, than the original one in yeah. Hollywood at the El Capitan Theater, right? The deep focus of Citizen Kane divides the French film community like a thick steak knife. What is this deep focus crap going on? Look at this painting in the background. Oh, where everything's in focus? Matisse. Did, did people not like everything Monet. being in focus? Mane is not in focus. Cezanne is not in focus. Goya is not in focus. Get this Hollywood crap out of France. See what I'm saying? Smoke your cigarette backwards. Citizen, citizen, yeah, smoking your cigarette backwards. Yeah, yeah wearing your beret in the coffee shop with, with, a, with, your, you know, with your goatee. Yeah, okay. exactly. Sounds like me, right? So, so Citizen Kane becomes... This dividing lightning rod in the French film community, this representation of Hollywood culture that we do not want in France. This is funny. This is hysterical because the idea that Orson Welles has become a Hollywood establishment anywhere in the world. And that's that's ludicrous. Isn't it? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't give him money. <laughs> so immediately you have an upturning yeah. of what is actually going on. Welles went to France because... 
They liked him so much. Well, oh, well, Hollywood rejected well, yeah. him. He had to get out after the lady from Shanghai in 1948, right? 1947. Yeah, I can see why. So Godar has a choice. What do I do? Do I go with the Impressionists? Do I go with the film establishment of France? What does he do? Well, well considering he's deep focus. Yes. He, he sides with Wells and he sides with Hollywood. And all throughout his films, you see Godard constantly well, I think going the back right to Hollywood convention, which is strange because he is considered this guy who is so revolutionary. How can he be revolutionary? If he's just copying. Yes. But he's only copy, copying like the technical aspects. I, I don't see a scene like this in a Wells movie. No, no, you're right. Well, even in uh, the Lady I, of Shang, even in the Lady of Shanghai, which mm-hmm. has long parts of dialogue on like an island or something. Well, I, I think you haven't seen the trial yet with Anthony Perkins, and I, th- I really, think, yeah, I think that if you saw that, I think that's 1962, and he shot that behind the Iron Curtain. Like I think he shot it in. Uh, uh, Was it a Soviet movie? No, no. I'm trying to. I think it was she shot in Czechoslovakia. Okay. Uh, I'll have to go back and check. It might have been might have been Austria, but you know Austria was split at the time. For no, not by nineteen sixty two. It might have been might have been gone. Anyway, I'm getting I'm getting off of the point. There's a scene in the trial in which Anthony Perkins and these cops are running around this uh, apartment, having an argument, and it's all one shot. And it's, it's how, how long is the shot gone? Oh, it's you know, it's like half a reel. It's like five six minutes. Oh, like it's, beginning of Touching People? Yeah, like really it's, it's long? like that long, right. yeah. And and there's a play on words and there's puns and everything. And, I mean, really, if Godard had done something like that... A long this, shot in Paris. And it, would have, it would have saved him a lot, of, a lot of screen time in this specific scene, right? But that's, that's not what he wanted to do. But there's also something existential going on with the jump cuts that are, that are happening even, even in the apartment. Like... We, I mentioned John Paul Sartre earlier, the famous existentialist philosopher who, who wrote a book in the 40s uh, during the war called Being and Nothingness. And he, and he was the one who was positing of, yes, we're alone in the universe. Yes, there is no heaven. Oh, quite yes, a cheerful guy. Huh? You know, re- religion, is, but he, the, the whole point of what he was saying, it doesn't mean that we cannot find pleasure in our lives for the now. It doesn't mean that our life does not have meaning. People will still remember us after we're gone. Longer, if we're lucky, we can still have a good life, but there's just nothing after. So the theory was, you know, we only remember the good things. We only remember the action. We don't remember all the times that we sat on the couch and did nothing. And Godard is kind of taking that existentialist idea about memory, and he's putting it onto film. Oh, well. Using the jump cuts. I completely disagree in every way. Tell me more, McLovin. Okay, like, the whole point is that he's cutting out the filler to highlight the important parts that you that he says you will remember, right? I forgot the last 15 minutes. <laughs> and if you think I'm cherry-picking here... Before that, I don't remember what happened. I just forgot. Before this scene, I don't remember it. 
during this scene, I'm currently forgetting what happened. Because there is nothing interesting happening right now. The other parts of the movie can. They could have more interesting parts. But if your whole entire point is you're highlighting the important parts, I disagree. Well, Godard had interesting ideas. He thought that to be a devoted cinephile was to be part of the cinema industry. And he also thought that the will to make a movie was just as important as really making one. That that sound that sounds like something Scorsese would say. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you think about it, right? Yeah. Just don't think about it too hard. Like have a plan. <laughs> that's that's going overboard. Yeah, that's going you're doing a deep dive right now with this whole existential film and whatever. But he was a shady character. You know, I was trying to get back to his poverty before, you know, in the forties and the fifties, he stole rare books from his family and his friends to support his cinema habit. He and Truffaut, how do you mean support? Like, was he buying reels and watching them? Oh or? no. He, he would go to the cinema 10 hours a day. Oh, like, he would round the do clock, nothing like but nine sit, to five, watch yes. movies. So like they're selling, he's selling yes. books and buying tickets to movies. Truffaut told a story that he and another guy and Godard went on a Sunday, and it was like ten a.m. and and at ten o'clock they had to leave because the last metro subway on the metro was left, stopping. Left at like eleven o'clock, right? So that was the last 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 train. But Godard stayed. To finish the movie, even though it got Did he out, have to walk home? Yes, across the city of Paris. What is that, like six-hour walk? Well, it yeah, I don't know where he lived and where the cinema was. I imagine cinemas were more frequent than they are now. Just because That is a very valid point, right? especially in France. But if you, if you got onto a subway, you're going pretty far. Belmondo got 50,000 francs to appear in this movie. Guess how much that was in American dollars. Oh, oh, whoa, whoa, hold on. So in the beginning of the movie, he had 180 francs, right? That was enough to buy coffee. <laughs> I'm considering that's not a lot. Okay, okay. So if one cup of coffee, how much is a cup of coffee in like 19, 1959? Okay, that's like what, 75 cents? Oh, not even. Maybe five 50 cents. cents. Maybe five cents. Five cents. Yeah, it was like a phone call. That was five cents. Five thousand dollars. Five thousand francs. Five thousand dollars. So oh, okay, so fifty thousand francs. Is you're telling 5, me that you're asking me the conversion? Yeah. How much was it in American dollars? So you got 50, paid fifty. 000, fifty thousand. Around francs. around five thousand. Around five thousand U.S. That, dollars. That's, that's my guess. One hundred U.S. dollars. <laughs> I thought I was being generous. <laughs> A hundred U.S. dollars? Yeah. Uh, not that it matters, but Jean-Paul, uh, Jean Seberg's, I'm sorry, Jean Seberg's first husband was Francois, Francois Morivelle, and he was a cousin of William Wyler. Who's William Wyler? He directed Ben-Hur. Oh. Yeah. So he was a French Jew who was from Alsace, and his family didn't survive. But he's uh. also, he was also in... Um, uh, he was in that group, you know, with John Ford and John Houston. Oh, those and, directors were yeah, just like... the five know, who came back. The ones. Yeah. Yeah. 
he was in that group. So, but he was the only one who was an expatriate who went back. He went back. Well, like um, John Ford was uh, originally born in Ireland, and his parents really, yeah, and his parents brought him to the United States. But he oh. he didn't remember really anything of of Ireland. John Houston was born in the United States. And uh, so were the the others in the group. But William Wyler was born in France. And so he came to the United States. He remembered everything. He didn't immigrate to the United States until he was in his 20s. So he spoke Yiddish and he spoke French. And he spoke English. Okay. Right. So he went back to France as a former French citizen. Even though his citizenship had been stripped of him because he was a Jew. During the Nazi occupation. He went back during the war. Yeah. Oh, to, that's to, uh, to film as a cameraman. It's interesting. Yeah. To shoot documentaries for who? For the U.S. Army. So, he, so someone smuggled him, smuggled him into Vichy, France. Oh no 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 no! Uh, he went with the with the invasion force. Oh, oh okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. I got you. And as they got closer and closer to Germany, uh, you know, he actually got into a jeep with some people, and they went to his village in France, where he's from, in Alsace, and and there was oh. nothing left of the Jewish oh, community, yeah. obviously, right? So he, he never saw any of his family ever again. Don't we have like a similar blanket to that? <laughs> yeah, I don't like know what the, color the, it is, the yeah. one with the stripes. Isn't that it right there? No, that's not, no it, was, it was close. Godard won the Jean Vigo Prize given to, quote, encourage an auteur of the future. Because in <laughs> France, you can award people for what they do, not in the past. What they do in the future? Yes. To give him an award for something he hasn't done yet? That's right. It's like um, Minority Report. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think they're doing? Okay, so while they're doing that, I had to write this entire thing down because it was too much to remember and I didn't want to miss a word, but I got this in that book, uh, Everything is Cinema by Godard, uh, or by a guy who wrote a book on Godard. Breathless is the cornerstone film of the French New Wave because it is the one that explicitly claims... The group's intellectual heritage, American movies, modern literature, a polemical yet highly rhetorical critical style, while at the same time brandishing the group's hectic, threadbare, disreputable, special circumstances, social circumstances. Moreover, with Breathless, Godard achieved for the cinema himself and his movement what Sartre had accomplished in the late 1940s for philosophy, himself, and existentialism. He made his movement the emblem of the times, defined his medium as one of the moment, one of the moment and personally became its exemplary figure. Godard instantly became the embodiment of cinema, the new wave, intellectual fashion, and intellectualism as fashion, 
Sark carried a generation with him in the name of the philosophy with which he was personally identified, existentialism. Godard did the same for the cinema, his ideas about it, and himself. He not only depicted and enacted the struggles of his generation, he ignited its ambitions, turning it into a group that wanted nothing more than to make films and to make them as he did. So that's just saying he's an auteur. Pretty much. Okay. Okay. So isn't this man still wanted? Yes. Good idea to leave the apartment, right? Okay. So back to what you were saying. Well, when last year when, when, uh, Dave is <laughs> pulling the yeah, shadow boxing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last year, when Dave and I were putting together the season for for the third decade on the Super Seventy podcast, I, the second oh. decade was a, a history of. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I want to ask you about yeah. that in a, in a bit. Okay, remind me. Um, we 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 chose a, a movie from from each decade of the, the last hundred years, uh, starting with. Um, um, Battleship Potemkin, yeah, in the in the teens, and uh, not in the teens, nineteen twenty five, and I don't remember what I had for for the sixties, um, but he said, you know, why don't you do something? Better be Butch Cassidy. <laughs> no, <laughs> there's definitely <laughs> oh, not Butch Cassidy. What? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I remember it had to be foreign film because the third oh, it had to decade, be foreign? It, yeah, the third oh, okay. decade is Never right. Mind. Battleship My Potemkin, forty ninth parallel M. Um, the Seven Seal. Uh, the, we choose all foreign films, so that's the Louvre there. Um, so he said, "Why don't you? Why don't you do something Russian for your first film? Some something Eisenstein did, like Strike or October or Battleship Potemkin." And I chose Potemkin because that's the one he's, he's most well known for. And and why don't you? Why don't you do something from the French New Wave? And instantly I was like, oh, yes, why, how could I have gotten, how could I have forgotten this? The French New Wave is so important in film. And if you look at films like The Graduate, like Mike Nichols must have watched Breathless 90 times to shoot The Graduate. Oh, is, is The, the Graduate grad- like, it, it like Bread? Di- okay. It's directly based on The French New Wave. I have not seen it. And, and well, I would say like. And cin- is, it like, is it like Breathless? Cinemagra- cinemagraphically, it's, it's way better than Breathless. It's no, amazing. Like in terms of like story, is he is it jump cutting uh, well, around? Well, is it well, useless he's not, he's not jump cutting around. He's not doing any existentialist crap like that. But there, there is like some deep thought going into uh, it. And, okay. And is and, Justin Hoffman carrying it though? Oh yeah. Oh for sure. Okay, so the star power is there. The right. star power is definitely there. Yeah. Um, but it's it's kind of if you could take everything that anyone had learned about the French New Wave and put it into one movie, it would be The Graduate. Okay. And I'd All already right. covered The Graduate, so I said, oh, that'd be perfect. Yeah, I'll do a French New Wave movie. And he said, yeah, why don't you do Breathless? Because Dave likes Breathless. And I'd never seen Breathless or A Bout de Soufflé, as it's called in French, right? In which I, I jokingly refer to. It's a, uh, it's it's what? It's about a souffle? But, you know, it's not. It's a bout de souffle. So, anyway, I said, that's that's a really great idea. And then I watched it, and I was just... Not you watched this? Yeah. Okay. For the first just... time. I remember I well, what? I remember I watched half of it, right, up into that one scene yeah, in the apartment. Okay. I was I jumped off. So I'll actually sit through and watch it now. 
So I got it on the Criterion channel, and I, then I read that great, that great intro, which is there's before Breathless. And after Breathless. And there's after Breathless. And then I watched this. That's a Ford Thunderbird, by the way. That is amazing. It's a gorgeous car. Who, who said that before and after? That's what Criterion wrote on the back of the DVD. I know, I know. Okay. Even Criterion can be wrong sometimes. This opened in Paris on March 16th, 1960 in four theaters. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're out in the country, you're, you're screwed. And it made 50 times the investment. Well, lucky him. He didn't spit. This is like a nothing. He spent nothing on this. Putting in a, an ice cream cart. Yeah. Saved a lot of money on locations. Seaberg was panned in the press for uh, previous films. Only Francois Truffaut, the famous film critic, who also turned into a director, kind of like uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Right? He liked her. He said she, quote, had a special quality of heartbreaking youth and beauty that some somehow shone through her technically inadequate performance. Like, okay. I don't know if that's a compliment or, okay. or that's a, a knock. Okay, I think her performance, it's it's good, but I don't like it. I think it's good, but I don't like it. I think that she was so, uh, I don't know, we better save that till later. She had a very tragic life uh, uh, that, that we're going to get to probably at a later date if we have time. What's... Uh, I remembered. I was going to ask you, what is your what's the next movie, or is that like in the works and top secret? And... Uh, I'll give you a hint at the end of the show. Oh, okay. Yeah, Breathless was government financed and an industry board of reviewers. Okay, if they were, if it was government finance, why were they not giving him the permits? Well, you still have to apply for the permits, but from from a separate body. You have to go to the city of Paris and say, I want to shoot a movie on this street corner. Can you give me a permit to do that? So being finance does nothing. It does nothing. No. Okay. Yeah. So an industry board of reviewers judges scripts quality for the funding. Tickets sold in France were going down in 1957. There are 411 million in 1958. There were 371 million. So if the film industry was going to survive, it needed to export it's films like wine and cheese. So that was a very deliberate choice on the film board to choose directors they thought would make exemplary films so that they could export those films. Was that controversial for the uh, very uh, diehard older? I, I don't think French so. People? I don't think that it was. It was kind of like uh, you know, for a while the British government was uh, spending public money on publicizing their rock bands. Because they were making so much money off the Beatles. They said, well, if we can find other rock bands. Okay. We'll, we'll, so we'll promote the British invasion. We'll, you know, and it, they did a lot of, uh, you know, the Who got a lot of free advertising out of it. Oh, that's nice. Right? What's going on here? Oh, so she, she is, uh, works for the New York Herald Tribune. You saw it on her yeah, shirt. Yeah, I, I saw it in the in the, yeah. the window too. And she's interviewing this uh, film director, 
who's talking about how he's this Casanova with women and I'm such a stud and he's kind of flirting with her and she's flirting back. I, yeah, I should be paying more attention because I have, it I have, won't matter. You you could start paying attention for yeah, the next then, 20 but minutes. Then again, and then, that could be like a, that could be a counter argument. It was like, Oh, you didn't really watch the movie. So how could you fully experience the amazingness that is breathless? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, After the shoot, Godard and Cochard spliced the film together so it could be processed in a laboratory. And they used a special developing bath for the effect. Oh, why is why is this cop killer with this reporter interviewing a director with people here? You would think that if you were a cop killer, the last thing you'd want to do is hang out with your American journalist girlfriend. Bogart had a better plan than this, and that was to rob a bank to get out. That was in High Sierra? If I'm wrong, which I don't think I am, no, I don't this, think so. This, he should be. Uh, he should be so like she breaks the fourth wall again, right? Like I just, I just think that. I think Godard. Did he take his? Had, did he take her car? Yeah, yeah, he did. I think Godard seriously. Um, I think he had a problem with women. Like he had. In which way? He had a problem getting together with women or he was so nervous, like, like he couldn't ask them out on a date or he was very nervous on dates. He had a problem being intimate with women or taking a risk to be with a woman. And I think that in, in this circumstance, he had this extraordinarily beautiful, extraordinary, yeah, extraordinarily beautiful woman on set. And he could not help himself, but to photograph her in this super erotic way. I think that was his way of being intimate with a woman because he, he couldn't find a way otherwise to do that because he was such a nerd. That's uh, one word for it. The dude stole books from his parents and sold them on the black market so he could spend all day in the cinema. Well, it's not a bad use of a day. You know? I mean, you could find a better way to finance it, but right, I might do. The, I I would do the same thing. So the script supervisor came to the set. Oh, you see the you see the newspaper? Yeah, it said Eisenhower um, something in French. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the French were big fans of Eisenhower. Oh, that's probably why he got front page. <laughs> Can you guess why the French were big fans of Eisenhower? Oh, uh, let me take a wild one. <laughs> <laughs> Is it maybe because he liberated he, their country? He liberated them. He walked on Normandy. But anyway, what were you saying? Uh, there was a script supervisor on set, just like there was on, on every, every movie. What script? Well, they had a script of on you know on this date we're going to film here. Oh, that's a schedule. But he did have like an order of scenes. He didn't know. What he just didn't write were. them. He, right, exactly. Okay. So he actually kept the script supervisor off the set because he was like, she's bothering me. There was also a continuity girl. So continuity girls are famous. That's, that's yeah, actually like fire, a slang to him. Yeah, of, fire the continuity girl. Yeah. Fire yeah. the continuity girl. Because, you know, in these takes, like, you know, Sean Connery's uh, uh, shirt is famously buttoned, unbuttoned. And that, that pot boiler speech he gives to uh, Kevin Costner in the untouchables 
His like his oh, shirt yeah? collars open, closed, open, closed. <laughs> it's like, how is that happening? And it's basically because the continuity girl yeah. was not paying attention, right? You're supposed to write down everything that's happening in between takes and in between scenes so that you have continuity between taking I mean, if you look at Bruce Willis's uh, 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 tank top in Die Hard, whoever mm-hmm. that continu- continuity girl was deserves an Oscar. Yeah, because how dirty it is. Yeah, there is it's... brilliant continuity. Mm-hmm. Now, however, Midnight Run, if you look at Jack Walsh's oh, white yeah, shirt, yeah, no. it goes from white to yeah. pale to white to dirt brown to white. Like, fire the continuity girl, right? Which is a Hollywood joke. What about... Uh... But here, uh, he got rid of her. He got rid of the continuity. I don't need you. What do I need you for? Send her home. He was indifferent to planning. And he was... Indifferent. He was indifferent to planning. Like, hey, why don't we do this tomorrow? And he's like, eh, if I wake up tomorrow and I feel that, then that's what we'll do. He did not fully close the door. And if you leave the camera rolling... (laughs) Why is the camera rolling? And here we are. We're still... So he's talking to okay, that guy okay, way okay. down there on there the screen on the right-hand side. I'll, I'll give right? it a hold out. There's but why does that purpose have to be in the right two inches of the shot? There is a purpose to it. A tour. Boom. Gotcha. Checkmate. No crowd control. So anytime they stop, no, I had the yeah, camera, no. right? Yeah, I could have figured that out. Sometimes if they finished a shot early, he would just say, oh, we'll just take the rest of the day off. If you did that in Hollywood, you'd be fired. If you, if say you finished a shot by 9 a.m. or 10 a.m., they would expect you to set up the next shot. Yeah. Even if that shot was planned for the following day. Godard would say, nah, we'll just take the rest of the day off. I thought that was customary. Like you just do that. That makes most sense. Set up the next shot. Yeah. Well, the, the famous one it's is less work for you tomorrow. Right. The famous situation is AI by Steven Spielberg. I'm right. Which I know that you don't like, but the way that he shot that was, was really crazy how he had f- yeah. four. D- uh, didn't he shoot it in, um, in continuity? Like he shot it from, start he shot to it in continuity and he, the, and he used because you're right. Because the the big problem it was a Stanley Kubrick project before yeah yeah before uh, he took it over. Stanley Kubrick had passed away, yeah. uh, but Kubrick had admitted before he died that he couldn't shoot it because he he said my last it was going to take like six it, six months, right? Was, oh no, he, uh, I think he his last movie was over a year. <laughs> and was that and, Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, Eyes Wide Shut, and and famously screwed up Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's schedule. Like they had to get out of other movies, and uh, they had to cancel contracts, and they were liable for a lot of money, like millions of dollars. And some people were able to forgive him, and other people were not. And things got really nasty. And so he didn't want to do that, particularly over a, a year and eighteen month period, because the child would age so fast mm-hmm. that he just said, "Oh, I, I just I'm such a a nutcase when it comes to acting. I can't do this." And Spielberg, of course, famously can work with any child. Like he's yeah, ET. Yeah, ET being a prime example of it. Or even the kids that are in um, um, uh, the Close Encounters of the Third, Third kind. kind, right? You know, there's great. He's just great with kids. So he he said, "Yeah, this is no problem. I'll shoot this damn thing in six weeks." Which to Kubrick was like, "No movie can be shot in six weeks. It's, it's no, you know, I'm lucky I did Eyes Wide Shut in two. Right? It should have taken six years, but." So he had uh, four studio uh, studio studio uh, buildings 
uh, at Universal that were basically across the street from one another in a, in a four building block. And um, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he set he the set scene up. Set up all the shot and, and went right. And then one, set set. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He just went from one to the other to the other. One was just CGI people that he hired so that they could they could start the work the minute the shot was done. <laughs> it was just rows and rows of, of cardboard tables and desks with yeah. computers on them so they could just start the work. And then uh, Haley, Haley Joel Osment was done in one. He'd go and prep for the second one. And while, while that was being done, the, the set in the first one was being struck for the next scene. Mm-hmm. And then Spielberg would go to the third one. He'd shoot a movie with Jude Law or shoot, shoot a scene with Jude Law. Yeah. And when that was done, he could go to the second one. Haley Joel Osment would all be ready for that. The dude was shooting like four scenes in a day. Which is that like, is amazing. Yes. Like, yes. Like, scenes are very, they can be very long. That's per, amazing. You and don't, particularly in AI. Like, I mean, there's a lot yeah. of, like, uh, like the, the sweeping shot in AI where the camera's uh, upstairs the and it comes yeah, downstairs yeah, yeah. through the, you know, the really, really complicated like, stuff. You normally, you only get, like, three, four minutes a day, if that. That's right. Right? Yeah, three minutes of screen time yeah. a day is the golden rule. Yeah. That's that's amazing. So here the, the cops have come to the New York Herald Tribune. Oh, you're trying to find them, of course. Exactly. Do you because, know? Uh, oh, let me, let me guess how they caught on. Was he, you know, interviewing someone with her? <laughs> Was he perusing around town? Possibly. I'm just amazing this was shot at all because, you know, sometimes uh, Godard would come to the set and everybody would be ready. And he would just say things like, I'm not inspired. I'm just not inspired right now. And he, they would just cancel shoot. Inspired with what? He would wait to be inspired before he would shoot. Clearly, he didn't wait long enough to, like, you know, write something good to be inspired by that. Is that his, is that his buddy in the back, or is that guy just staring at the camera down? Hey, he well, it could there. be that it was just a random person looking into the window and saw a camera and was like, what's that? Because there is no crowd control. Yeah, the first cut was two and a half hours long. He didn't cut entire scenes. He cut all the non-action out. The editor said such cuts were generally considered to be a cardinal error of an amateurish film technique. Okay. Um, so the editor who when put did this, this guy up, live? When did that the, the reviewer? That, that was the editor of the this editor. Film. Yes. Okay. He thought this was amateurish, <laughs> and he put it together. But he did it under there. Well, it's it's definitely unique, and uh, it's I never really seen it before for the whole movie to be cut like that to shave down time. It's not that bad. I, I kind of like it, but like in terms of like, remember that part in the beginning with the car mm. and they're both driving in. Like every other second, they were cutting, and that just got annoying. Right. And like when you're looking at the back of her head for six different shots. Yeah, and there's a cut like every five every, or six every seconds. Five, five yeah. or six seconds. Yeah, that yeah was, these that are was longer. Annoying. These are longer. Well, they're on the roof. But yeah, look. Yeah, well, you know why they're on the roof. You oh, don't need, yeah, don't need a permit. And this is during a parade. So I mean, but they woke up. He just up wanted and, to get enough. Exactly. He just wanted a parade in there, man. So this this reminds me of that scene in Super Eight. I don't know if you remember that, the J.J. Abrams movie. I barely remember that movie. Where the, the kid, the, we ought to watch it again. It's really good. I remember I didn't like it. And the the kids were uh, they like were filming. They're filming with the Super Eight camera on like a train station, and then a train yeah, yeah, yeah. train starts it coming. Just comes up and they're like, oh, perfect. Oh, it's, let's get the train. Yeah, yeah, let's get the train in the shot. Right now, all of this was uh, dubbed. 
There's not a minute of live dialogue. That live dialogue. The entire movie is. Oh well, yeah, I can't hear it. So. Well, yeah, but <laughs> see, Mister Obvious Cop here, going into. Oh, is it a theater? Let me get. Yes, yeah, so theater? you. Right. It's where you go to hide out, escape, the theater. I was thinking hide. Yeah, hide. Yeah, sure. But I was thinking escape. You were thinking escape. escape. I was thinking Oswald. Oh yeah. Back and to the left. <laughs> That's where Oswald was hiding in the theater. The Texas Dames. Theater. Yes. No. On the wall. Mrs. So the jump cut, despite and because of its ill repute, became one of the principal figures of the visual style of Breathless. Okay, that cut I did not like. There's lots of the jump cuts that don't particularly make sense to me. Like he's chain smoking. He's literally lighting one with yeah, the with, butt with of the, the other. other. Yeah. yeah. I used to do that when I smoked a lot, when I was in bars, when I chain smoked. So he comes out of the cinema looking for her. And then we're, we're cutting to this. Where are they? Why are they there? Like, that's just... He's still skipped. supposed to be running from the... I'm still hooked on the part where... The beginning was really interesting. The first five minutes, I was in. Because the cop was like, shot? Oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. That was cool. I liked that. Now, the rest of it, this is... This is where it goes... This is like Roman Holiday. How so? They're going off together. They're one One person is escaping... To get to to meet with someone, to peruse around Paris. You know what I mean? You know, I th- it's, it's very loose, but like that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. As, yeah, I as think that Godard would like that comparison. I think that he, if someone had compared his film to Roman Holiday, okay, I think he'd well, be not very happy. that way, not that way. I'm just talking like very yeah, loosely as, as film structure. Yeah, as film structure, structure. Yes, it's nothing compared to. Anything Audrey Hepburn's Audrey Hepburn's been in, but what is? So he's got one more one more person. Like the whole the whole movie has been going from person to person to person, trying to get all this money that's owed to him, right? So yeah, yeah, think, yeah. I think there's one more left where he's trying to. What happened to the? When was the last one? He went to a hotel, and the guy was like, "Sorry, I can't. I don't have any money on you," which we found out later was a lie. Wasn't that right? before? They that twenty minute, like no, it was after. Well, he that was somewhere else. I think that yeah, that was like a bookie that he went to that would oh, owed him okay. money. Yeah. So here they are. This is the uh, Plaza de Invalide on the right bank. That's a quote. It's a quote. Yeah, it's a quote. Murderers, murderer, lovers, love. Ah, oh. that's a quote right there. That's a high school yearbook one right there. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it tries to be so hard boiled, like I gotta switch this car, and it's like, come on, dude, you were interviewing someone in broad daylight at an airport, <laughs> same day. Let's steal the Cadillac. So that was another thing that was kind of something like driving around in T Bird. Now he wants a Cadillac. There's just a lot of uh, let's be low profile. Get the Cadillac. My God, there can't be too many Cadillacs rolling around Paris in 1960. 
Oh. This is... I like. Uh, you can see him in the rearview. I like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't notice that before. But, you know, the lighting doesn't do anything. It would have been, it would have been cool if they lit up each person as they drove. Like, you could only see... Like, well, well um... I, don't, I forgot I forgot his name, but the but the guy that would be cool. If, like while he was talking, like the light dimmed around everything else and just showed the rearview mirror, and oh. then drove forward, and then everything dimmed, and then you could see the back of her head. Right, I thought that would be cool, but no permits. But you know, armchair editor. Oh, that was the 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 girl in the beginning. Yeah, that's right. They found her in all of Paris. <laughs> just, just happened to be driving just, by her. So I, I think that we we're closing in on the on the end here, and we missed a shot, which was him like leaning up against a a, a bollard in the Champs Elysees, right when the lights come on, and and uh, it's still like twilight hour in Paris. We saw a similar shot earlier, and I said I want to get back to that for the next shot oh, that yeah. we see. And, that shot came and passed. And so it goes back to, and I'm, I may have mentioned this before on our, on our recent trip about how um, Godard had told the cinematographer, Cotard, uh, look, we're going to be shooting in low level light. And I don't want to use traditional film stock because you can't see Anything. deep focus in like this, right? You can see clearly across the street in low level light. Oh, this is what you're saying that they bought like thousands of things of a specific film. Right, right. So they, they were looking for a specific film stock that Codyard had used in the Signal Corps when he was in Indochina. Yes, yes. Right? And, and low-light stuff. Right, So because that's all they use in the Army. Well, they went to uh, all these stores in Paris looking for this stuff, and nobody had it. Only the Army had it. Yeah. But uh, they found the exact same film was being used for still cameras. So on... On a still camera, um, you could get 12, 24, 36, and on a long reel of film, you could get 54. So he went, Godard went to all of the film stores in Paris, and he bought up all of the low-light still photography. That he could? That he could. And then they, they went into a dark room and pulled them all out of the of the reels, which is, it protects it from light. And, yeah. And in the dark, they taped it together. Yeah. I don't even want to uh, imagine how long that took. Just, just to make one reel of 10 minutes. And they did that over and over I don't and over again until they had enough, enough reels to shoot. And they this said movie this, on. the original cut was two and, and a half the, hours. I don't even want to imagine. And the thing that the gets me is was. the sprockets had to match. The sprockets had to match. For the connecting? Yeah. The, on the, to go on the, to go on the real, right? Yeah. Like how did, I don't even know if that was like, obviously it happened, but that's kind of, I don't know if the sprockets are even the same. They, on, they did some MacGyver stuff. To they do they it. had to, they had to make it work somehow. It's, I, I guarantee you it's not universal. It's not as easy as that. It's just not. And so when they, when they shot it, uh, they would have to develop it in a very specific way. But I did the math of how much footage you did. Like this is as for a 90 minute film. Oh, you like did the math. I, I did. And I, I, unfortunately I don't have the numbers with me, oh. but, but it, it's like 9,000 feet of film. 
It's 9,000 feet of film. It's, it, was, it was under 10. Can, can you imagine stitching together 9,000 feet of film, 54 frames at a time, and then running it through? Like, that's crazy. Well, what was that movie that I, I don't remember, but like uh, it was like one of the great directors. Like It was like something like Spielberg or like a Scorsese. They, they shot a movie, and it was something like 10,000 feet of film. Or something like that. It was a ludicrous amount of film. I thought that was crazy. Well, fourteen thousand. You said fourteen thousand. For this was nine thousand feet. Nine thousand. Oh, yeah. sorry. Um, still nine thousand. But, but that's I mean for a ninety minute, for a ninety minute individually. Film. But, but remember, this is like a one take and two take film. Like he didn't do five takes, right? But, yeah, no. It's like it's Clint not. Eastwood, and uh, so Matt Damon, the Annie Fincher, very recently. Matt Damon went on the Mark Maron podcast. We talked about this yes. before, and he talked and he told an enormous amount of anecdotes, which was just fascinating. And he said that in in uh, his entire time with Clint Eastwood for the movie Invictus, they <laughs> shot eighteen thousand feet of film in something like six weeks. Oh my! God. And he just thought like that was crazy. He said that Michael Mann uh, was signed on to direct one of his films. And I can't remember which one it was, but it would shock you because they had a different director later. And he brought in Matt Damon for a screen test. And Michael Mann went through 8,000 feet of celluloid in one day. Jesus Christ. Screen testing Matt Damon for a movie. Yeah. In a day. In a day. And Eastwood used that in six weeks to make Invictus. And, and... Godard uses half of that to make Breathless in the span of three weeks. And by the way, Magnolia, I know you haven't seen Magnolia, but Paul Thomas Anderson is generally you're a fan of. You kind of like Boogie Nights. And you you really liked Road to to Perdition you liked. I'm reevaluating my position. I kind of like Boogie Nights. I hate it, but (laughs) that's a different podcast. But the the film Magnolia with Tom Cruise and, yeah, and I, Jason Robards, have you seen it? No. No. Okay. So I remember watching on the DVD, special edition DVD for Magnolia, they had the cinematographer who was at like at the taco truck and the guy with the B-roll camera came up to him. This is like 2000, 2002. They're still using film, right? Maybe 2004. They're still using film. He runs up to the taco truck and he's like, so, you know, how's it going? Oh, yeah, it's going great. Yeah. So, so what's the stressor today? Like, what's freaking everybody out? It's like, well, I think we're at half a million. They're like half a million dollars, half a million Cokes for the crew, half a million eggs you got to make every day, half a million frogs you got to throw out of the sky. What, what's the big deal? What's half a million what? He's like, we're about half a million feet of film. Nobody goes through half a million feet of film. 500,000 feet of film? Like, you're kidding. Find, like... That's 500,000 feet. Ben-Hur was not shot on 500,000 feet of film. That's, I don't think the war was shot on 500,000 feet insane. of film. That's insane. I think someone was uh, making that up, making that shit up. No, that cinematographer like he, at the taco truck, like he was, I can't remember his name, he was under a crushing amount of stress because they were, they were going through so much. Film. How much money? It's an enormous amount of money. Is that, I thought this nine thousand feet of film yes. was crazy. Yeah, half a mil. Yeah, half a that's million. the other. That's the other end of the spectrum, right? Okay, 
clearly I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to length of film in a movie, but I know what is enough. And half a million is way for a three-hour film. You you better have like a twenty-four-hour film with half a million feet. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> first cut is thirty-six hours. Yeah, that's right. It's been done before. Uh, Andy Warhol made a twenty-four-hour film. What was it called? Uh, I think it was called Twenty Four Hours. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Yeah, <laughs> that's ironic. He also made a uh, movie called Penis, which is his boyfriend's penis going up and down. Is it a short film? <laughs> <laughs> so if you notice, uh, this is this is a particularly good shot here, and, and this is I like this the well, second it, apartment film. They're in hiding, obviously. Yeah, but you see, it's shot at disorienting angles in opposite directions. And I wouldn't call it disorienting when the when this first she see a scene. First well, the, the whole like film, it. like when they're driving in a car, they're going from screen left to screen right. Then they're walking when they get out okay, of the that car. Was, going that from was screen right to screen left. Like, this isn't. This is nice and slow, mostly. Yeah, well, they're using a high angle here. Like I don't know if he's standing on a ladder or if there's like a balcony in this apartment. Like he grabbed Whoa. her by the neck. Like that was kind of like, geez. How many how many times have she changed it up? Changed outfits. I don't think that he has. I think he's wearing the same shirt as Oh, he. sorry. She. He, she. Oh, she's gone through at least four. At least four? Yeah, I think so. But it's always like striped. Remember the, her shirt was striped yeah, and there was a sweater. I just want to see how many times she changes because like if she can beat Ferris Bueller of how many times she changes. Oh, yeah. And I, wanna, I just want to. So this is pretty cool, that. like following her around the world. So this is so she became because of this she became a huge European star right she did a lot of European films and Hollywood actually asked her back and then she did a few westerns and she, oh yeah and, yeah and then she she did uh, a, a few movies in Hollywood she married a French guy and they bought a house and so she had a house in Beverly Hills and she had a house in Paris and so I think he was a, a French playwright or something so she would go back and forth in the meantime uh, she met. Uh, one of Betty Shabazz's bodyguards. So Betty Shabazz was the wife of the widow of Malcolm X. Yeah, I, Shabazz ringed the bell. Yeah. So uh, when was this? This is about 1966 or so. This is this is late 60s. So this is six, seven years after Breathless. And this is this is like what? Two years before Malcolm X dies. No, oh, Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. I remember. Five. I remember okay. Correctly. After. Yeah. So it's after. after after he's dead. Yeah. And um, this guy was in the Black Panther Party. I cannot remember his name. So she um, uh, she met him and then started financing uh, the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles. Oh, now wow. before okay. we uh, before we just jump off the ledge and start thinking she's giving them grenades and firearms, that's not what was going on. The the Black Panthers in the 1960s, believe it or not, fed more poor kids no, than the, the U.S. Yeah, government. Yeah, yeah, they went over this in the, like Judas and the Black Messiah, right? Oh, that's right, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, the film with uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah, that was an yeah, amazing. Great film, great film. HBO Max, watch it now. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, she was given like checks of $5,000 to these people and it was feeding all the, all these yeah. kids. And apparently she roped in a lot of her Hollywood friends to do this too. Oh, wow. Right. So, but it was, it was completely on, on the down low. 
Like you well, could, yeah, you could course. not be seen could financing the Black yeah. Panther Party. Like that was yeah. At the time, you could not have right. Done, you could not have done that. Um, it was more respectful. Respectful. Like if you ever see photographs of uh, Martin Luther King's funeral, you I will am. forget that it's Martin Luther King's funeral. You would I, think I, that I mean. you would think that like Elvis died in 1968. It looks like anyone who was anyone in Hollywood was at his funeral. Paul Newman and Robert Redford was at were at his funeral. Wow. Yeah, it was Charlton Heston was at his funeral, who was a huge civil rights advocate in the 60s. Believe it or not. He's he's only turned into this right-wing fascist uh wacko <laughs> okay. in the last okay. 20 I, years because he was head of the NRA and Michael Moore has painted him as this person that Michael Moore wants you to believe him in. I've but never in the, heard of that. But he in was the 60s head of the NRA? Yeah, yeah, he was the head of the National Rifle Association for like five years or six years before he got Charlton sick. Yeah. Charlton, Charlton Heston, Heston was, yeah. Okay. Well, it makes sense that he's again. So here's, oh, man, we're completely letting the movie go away. So This is cool. Yeah, I love so, this. So who turned him into the cops? Her. Yes. I love that. To quote High Fidelity, his effing girlfriend. <laughs> I love this. This right? is amazing. Yeah, going down this side street. Why are we going down this side street? Because it's not a main street, so people can't stop us. Yeah. Like cops, well, and right? And you see people are like, what is going is, on? Right? Why so is he completely limping? handheld. Yeah. And they had four different ideas for the ending. None of those ideas uh, uh, panned out. They did not decide. Godard did not decide what was going to happen in the end until this morning when they decided to shoot the ending. Huh. And then he drops. Look at that. That was a, an amazing drop. So despite the fact that she turned him in, she's upset. <laughs> she did last puff of the cigarette with the, oh my God. the Galois. And this is a famous ending to the scene. She pulls her hand away from her face. She comes to terms with what she's done. And he's basically like having like a joke with her at last. Yeah, I remember that in the in the apartment scene, the twenty minute apartment right. scene. Right. Exactly. Did this. Yeah, exactly. And he's basically telling her it's okay. Yeah. It's all right. Don't worry about it. I didn't like you anyway. And he closes his own eyes. And of course, what is she going to do? You know what she's going to do. Don't do it. She's going to do it. Don't. See. <laughs> the Buddha souffle, my friend. Thanks for hanging out with Luke and I while we watched Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. You can find the Super 70 podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. But if you want to read my film reviews or blogs or buy my books, you can go to www.thatdillandavis.com. If you like the podcast, you can leave a review on iTunes, which apparently matters to everybody. And if you didn't like it, you can drop me a line at thatdillandavis at gmail.com. All music on the podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can find her at... RosalindMcPhail.com 
I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time on Hans Island.